Welcome to the Ready Eddy Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. What's going on, guys? Before we get into today's podcast episode, I wanted to give you a quick update on the Ready Eddy membership program. To this point, we've grown to have thousands of products from up-and-coming startups and small businesses in the outdoor travel and lifestyle space on the platform. You can save up to 50% off all of these products, anything from skis to jackets to food bars to supplements. Anything you could think of to support your outdoor activities is on the platform from small up-and-coming brands. It's a great opportunity to support small businesses while also discovering brands that you've never heard of. You can show off the new gear to your friends and also save a ton while doing it. If you're interested in checking it out, head over to readyeddy.com slash members to get your first month free. What is going on, Ready Eddy Podcast listeners? Josh Salvo here, your host. On today's episode, I am sitting down with the designer and brand manager for Drop, uh, Chris uh, Gujan. Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Josh. I'm glad I didn't butcher your last name too, too bad. <laughs> no, you did well. Awesome. All right. So Drop, let's, uh, let's talk about the brand specifically for the listener that um, may not be familiar uh, with Drop. How would you best describe it to uh, someone new? Uh, I guess the best way that I could describe Drop in its current form is um, we are a direct-to-consumer brand offering premium product, um, nothing but high-end details, high-end um, parts of our product um, at a low price. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of says it all. Direct-to-consumer, premium product at the best price we can offer it to you at. And, and obviously, the, the two flagship sort of products are gloves and ski and snowboard goggles. Um, right. Yes, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, we are a snowboard accessories, uh, snow and ski accessories brand um, focused on gloves and goggles specifically. Yeah, no, so far I, we got the goggles a little while ago. So one of the unique things about the goggles for the listener that may not be familiar is that they have magnetic lenses. Um, so it's real easy to change out the low light uh, for low light lenses on storm days or if it's sunny out, bluebird days, um, for that more protective lens, which I think is really cool. Like, there's a, a few brands doing that now, and it's definitely become more popular. Um, but so far, I, I like the way that you guys do it. It's simple. It's not like the Smith um, option where it's kind of like a little bit more intensive, and it kind of takes you like five minutes to jiggle it. If you don't put them in the right spot, then you're like kind of like shit, <laughs> you know? <clears throat> but... So far, I do really like the the quality of the goggles. Um, so it, this obviously is going to be a little bit of a different podcast because, like, typically we do have founders on the show. Um, with you, though, like, obviously you've been around since pretty early stages. Drop got started in 1998. You came around, came on board in 2001. So you've basically been there since the start. Um, so I'd love to hear a sort of... Um, your background, how you got involved, and you know what that journey has been like. Sure. Um, so I grew up in, in Montreal, in Canada, um, and had been snowboarding my 
whole life practically. I started snowboarding in around 1986. Um, and uh, I had dreams and aspirations of one day becoming a pro snowboarder at a certain point. By the age of about 16, 17, I realized that I wasn't as talented as some of my friends were. And that I should probably take a, a different path. Um, and I was always into graphics. So I studied graphic design at Concordia University in Montreal. Um, and when I finished there, there was uh, a listing in our local alternative newspaper looking for a snowboarder slash designer um, to work in an office in Montreal. So, of course, I answered that ad right away. And I went in and interviewed with uh, with one of the owners of Drop at the time, and uh, got the job. And I've been with the company ever since. And that was in two thousand, mid two thousand, let's say. Um, so I started as the assistant designer to a head designer, um, but quickly became the head designer by about two thousand four. Um, Going back to the start of Drop, so Drop was founded in 1998, probably came to market late 99. And uh, when Drop first came on the market, it was really uh, a game changer in the fact that it offered, kind of similar to what we're doing right now, a premium product at a price that people hadn't really seen before. Um, we had a killer team, a great image, but the pricing didn't reflect that. Um, and we have been doing gloves. Um, we had a significant backpack um, collection at that time, but gloves was really always the bread and butter of our business. Um, and that carried through. And I have been designing gloves and snowboard accessories or ski accessories um, ever since. Okay, so who, with Drop, how, who would you say you're designing your products for? Like, who who exactly is that perfect fit customer? Um, the perfect fit customer is really someone who just wants to be outdoors in the snow, snowboarding or skiing, um, and sliding down the hill. Um, I myself, to this day, um, would define myself as a snowboarder first and foremost before anything else, actually, and. I feel like I'm still my target customer. I've always designed for myself, and I feel like my needs on the hill relate to a lot of our customers' needs. Um, so that's kind of the end goal is as long as I'm out there on the hill and other people are, we know what people want, and that's who we're designing for, ourselves and our customers. I think that's a really good point in uh, you know, just bringing up the fact that you don't want your, your, your ski gear made by someone who's never skied before, right? Or your snowboard gear, or your climbing gear, or your hiking gear, any of that, right? Exactly. I mean, you can take that back to all the way to Yvon Chouinard, and rock climbers don't want people making carabiners that don't know what they're doing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> because once he started designing, you're like, you know, this. I, I don't understand why this is this way. I'm just going to make it better. <laughs> you know, like, um, I actually just got through rereading his, his book, Let My People Go Surfing, and just going through the whole process of bolts not being you know originally they weren't you you would just you'd climb and you leave them up there right and he figured out a way to make it so you could take them down 
And that's, that's it. Sort of it's like, funny. I'm like two chapters in. I just started the book this uh, like two nights ago. Nice. Well, it's a great read. <laughs> so <laughs> enjoy. <laughs> Synstrop has been around since 98 and you came on board mid 2000. What has the um, evolution been like from, you know, when you came on board to today? Um, you know, that's obviously a, a pretty long road. Um, we've seen a lot of ups and downs throughout the years, but the evolution has really been um, Growing our, our customer base um, and giving them the best product that we can. Um, the evolution of myself within the company was, like I said, I started as the assistant designer. And then when the head designer at the time left to start his own thing, I stepped up and became head designer for Drop. Um, at the time, my wife uh, had an opportunity in Los Angeles. So I moved to, to California and the owners of drop were nice enough to allow me to continue um, my duties as a designer for the company um, out here in California, where I live today. Um, I'm no longer in LA, I'm down in the San Diego area, but I've been working out of Southern California since 2004, 2005. Um, now, the progression of the company has been we had a long history um, in the traditional retail uh, world um, and very successful um, within that world um, in snowboards specifically. It's been a pretty consistent process as far as from 2001 to about 2015. Um, we had we grew, we had great marketing, um, we were doing a lot of marketing and traditional media outlets um and and things were going well uh we had a couple of bad winters in a row um that the whole industry felt um but uh all in all successful definitely now <clears throat> i guess over that time so like when you joined in 2000 was drop still a pretty small company sort of like getting itself established or was it you know, pretty well um, underway at that point? It was pretty well underway. Um, I came in, they were looking for someone to come in and help out because they kind of hit the ground running and uh, were very successful uh, right away. Um, we kind of came out with half of the team being basically the Forum 8. Mikey LeBlanc was on the team. Um, Jeremy Jones, uh, I mean, I could go Devin Walsh, the list goes on and on. Um, so with that image and um, some really well-priced product, it was very successful off the bat. And I just kind of came in to fill the gap of where one guy or three or four guys, you know, doing it was, wasn't quite enough. That's really interesting. Okay, so you have a strong team that has a great image, obviously, in the snowboard uh, winter sports realm. Um, did you lean on those on those athletes and those individuals who had like a following to really help get drop out there, or were there other things that you guys were doing that really helped um, gain that exposure online? Because, like, obviously, in a in the two, early two thousands, a direct and consumer brand was a pretty revolutionary thing, right? Like it wasn't like, it's not like it is today where that's more of a, a more popular thing, right? Okay, well, this is somewhere, I might've lost you along the way here, but we were not direct to consumer in the beginning. Um, 
the direct-to-consumer model only came out, we only came to market with that model last season. So we're only going into our second season right now with the direct-to-consumer model. So until early last year, the drop brand was a, a traditional um, tr- sales model. Okay, so so you were in all retail shops, and then the last two years you pulled out of retail and went directly to direct to consumer. That's right. What made you guys decide to make that sh- that shift? Um, you know what? It was um, a changing landscape of the way the world was working. Um, myself and the owners a few years ago, because um, obviously it wasn't a decision that happened overnight. We were looking around and uh, seeing what was happening in not necessarily in the snow or ski market, but in consumer market in general and seeing a lot of direct-to-consumer brands coming out. Um, some that come to mind are Warby Parker, specifically Everlade, <laughs> and let's say Tesla even in, in automobiles. and. Also, at the same time, we just saw everything within the sports industry or the snow sports industry getting more and more expensive, whether it was lift tickets, gear, um, you know, outerwear, everything, you know, lift tickets specifically, but everything was just getting more and more expensive. And we want to kind of we wanted to try and kind of go back to where we had started as a brand, which was great product at a better price than anybody else can give you. And we saw the direct-to-consumer model as a way to do that. So, obviously, transitioning from the brick-and-mortar retail um, direction or sort of uh, outlet <clears throat> to the direct-to-consumer online, it must have taken some work, right? Because like you've got to let know, let your all of your accounts know that, like, hey, like this is the direction we're going, so we're no longer going to be offering our product through your stores, right? So, like, I imagine there was probably a, like growing pains almost, right? Where you were losing um, your channel of sales, right? Through the, the retail shops and then um, relying directly by selling online. Did you sort of work through and sort of like fine tune those channels before you guys made the jump or was it just you jumped and figured it out as you, as you went? Uh, a little bit of both. I mean, we definitely set up some... Uh some people with what we were going to do um, as far as, you know, longtime customers go. Um, but we, like I said, we are, maybe I didn't mention this, but we were kind of sitting in a really good spot at the end of a particular season um, where we had had really good sell through and basically had an empty warehouse. And it was the perfect opportunity for us to kind of take the brand and one, it was needed a refresh as far as branding goes. Um, so I wanted to redesign the whole line anyways. And and that was right around the time that we were discussing this direct-to-consumer model. Um, so it was really, a, and because we are so winter-driven as a company, it was an easy transition that it wasn't like a, you know, halfway through the season, we pulled the plug on anybody. It was just like the next season... We, we basically, as far as the end user goes, we kind of took a, a season off to re, redesign the line, redesign the website. Um, yeah, so, I, I mean, as far as, as um, 
burning bridges, I guess maybe it, uh, I wouldn't say we did that at all because it was kind of one season to the next and it, things change year to year, as you know, in winter sports anyways. And this was just the, the path that we took this one particular year. And I don't think anybody took it personally. Okay. So you made that transition. Now, were you at all worried about hitting your numbers, obviously pulling out of retail and going direct to consumer, or did you have a pretty good idea on the sort of volume that you guys could move in your first year of being direct to consumer? We were conservative in, in what we uh, bought originally. Uh, we knew we had a customer base out there of end users that would love our product direct as well as they would have any other way of getting it. Um, so, you know, our, our initial buys were, were conservative, um, but we were confident that, that we, could, we could sell through or sell what we, uh, what we needed to, um, to kind of launch. How did you market it being direct to consumer? Like, obviously you don't have storefronts and foot traffic and all that kind of stuff. So you had to get more crafty with using social and other things like that. Was there anything in particular that you guys did that really helped you gain that exposure and drive those sales online? Uh, you know, the number one thing as most companies will tell you today was, uh, growing our social media following and really pushing um, Instagram and, and Facebook um, and trying to get the message out as much as we could that way. We also, um, you know, made a pretty significant investment with some of the, the kind of usual suspect media outlets um, that didn't go as far as we thought it might have. Um, so this year we've refocused actually all of our marketing um, through growing our social media network and, and pushing our message out that way. So is there anything in sort of making this transition that you guys learned um, or, or any like mistakes that you made that in sort of transitioning to the direct to consumer model? You know, I wouldn't say it was a mistake in the transition of going direct to consumer. Um, but one thing that I wish looking back, um, we would have focused on a little bit earlier uh, was growing our social media following. Um, by the time we came around to seeing how important that was, uh, the market was very saturated already. Um, through and um, I, I, when I talk social media, I speak about Instagram more than anything because that's the most relevant one as far as I'm concerned. Um, but there were brands early on that um, got on board very quickly and realized how important that was going to be. And I wish we had been one of those guys. 32 is a perfect example. Um, by the time I said, we really need to grow our Instagram following, they already had 100,000 followers. And I was trying to get five. <laughs> so, right, right, right. And, and the other thing is, by the time you come around to that realization, it, that can't happen again. Um, it, the, your customer's feed is saturated and the amount of companies is saturated. So there's, there's only so many people that can like or, or follow a specific thing. And to organically grow your following, I don't think it can ever happen again the way it did, let's say, six or seven years ago, right. um, which, which was kind of the time to do it. Yeah, like 2008 to 2011 was, I guess, like the sweet spot, right? Exactly. And now you see brands that were focused on that then, um, you know, be it the, the bigger names. But again, like the 32, I think, is a good example because they're not Volcom or Burton, but they're also not us. And 
they are approaching 200,000 followers now. And I think most of that's organic and it's because they jumped on board right away and realized the importance of it. That's interesting. Now, is there anything that you feel is like the next version of, of Instagram that you guys are kind of working on um, to really help catapult you guys in, into the next, you know, three, five years? My gosh, if I had that answer, um, <laughs> yeah. I wish I could tell you. It's, it's always hard to see these things coming. Um, I, I think it's, it's going to be a continuation of, of the way things are going right now. Um, but I feel like Instagram is becoming less personable or less personal and more of a marketing machine. And I think we just have to follow with that and use influencers. But again, the influencer thing is almost oversaturated in itself so it's it's true um, unless you're like someone who has three million followers (laughs) you know like like a kim kardashian or someone who's like a crazy i don't even know what you call them but like uh uber influencer like for a lack of a better term you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and i i really think at the end of the day um i would like to think good old-fashioned word of mouth is is probably the best one of the best ways to grow something, put a quality product out there and hope people talk about it. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's something that we've learned with Ready Yeti with our membership, like as we've made improvements with it, the amount of people who sign up just by like referred by a friend, you know, it's like, huh, <laughs> kind of forgot about right. that part of marketing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's kind of what social media is. It, uh, it can be, you know, it's, it's that word of mouth. If it happens organically, it's, it's, it's old-fashioned word of mouth, just in a digital age. No, definitely. Um, so what would you say has been the hardest part about making this transition to the direct-to-consumer side? Uh, that, specifically. Um, growing the exposure and getting the word out there. It is- um, is there anything like in making that transition, the transition, like, like an aha thing where you're like, well, duh, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know how we didn't realize this or notice that this would happen. Um, I, you know, not specifically, it's, it's just, I, I, I knew what needed to be done and it's, it, that oversaturation issue is, is the biggest hurdle, um, with it all. Right. And, and I guess making that quality product, like, is there anything you can think that you can do on top of making a great product that can help sort of combat that oversaturated um, issue? Uh, you know, I, I really think it's just finding the right way to get the message out there um, and, and getting it to the broadest audience possible. Um, you know, one thing that people tend to not mention often is mailing lists and that has been probably one of our our best marketing um facets with within this whole relaunch of the company um our email lists are people who want to hear from us and when they do um we tend to get a lot of traffic on the site more so than just putting up a, a good post on instagram yeah i mean that's how we built ready eddie all through our email list, <laughs> you know, years of just slowly curating and building quality, a quality following of people, like you said, that actually want to hear from you and hear what you're doing, hear what you're working on, hear what products are coming down. Um, 
you know, the pipeline and stuff like that. It's really interesting. And it's the one medium that you have the most control over because like Instagram or Facebook or any of the social platforms, they can change the rules or the algorithms. You know what I mean? And like in a, in and a they day, do daily. Yeah, yeah. And they do. It's, so like all of a sudden you can go from getting crazy, great engagement to just kidding. You have to pay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it, that's not like an aha thing or anything. I guess I'm, I guess, all that to say, I'm waiting for that aha moment to come when it comes down to it. Yeah, I don't know if it ever will. <laughs> it's kind of a funny thing that I feel like a lot of people assume happens, but it's really just over time, slowly figuring it out, right? Yeah, like like uh, my buddy Jib Hunt uh, from Kemper said on the last podcast that we're we're uh, what was that expression? They said we're building the plane as we fly it. <laughs> right yeah you're you're assembling the plane as uh, while you're in the air exactly so what what advice would you give to someone that wanted to start a direct to consumer business uh in the outdoor action sports industry or or just really any business in general um to me the the if someone wanted to do that, the key is to, uh, in my opinion, and where we stand as a company, is to offer the end user the best value that you can. Um, don't go out there and start an online company because that's the easiest way to sell to the end user, but try and sell your product for the same price that, that the big companies are selling it for. Um, because a lot of these online big companies are you know doing sales the traditional way um and then selling to the end user directly through their website as well but they're selling it at a a major markup that doesn't have to be there and don't i guess don't fool yourself or your customer um into thinking that that markup needs to be there when it doesn't that's really great advice. Where where do you see drop manufacture uh, drop going in the next year, five years, ten years down the road? Um, you know, my next step or where where I would like to see us go is um, number one is to become what Everlane or Warby Parker have become in their categories um, to the snow sports industry. So be that go to online um uh brand i don't know we can edit that out (laughs) after but i guess uh be that that go-to online company where you can go and get what you need for your winter sports goods beyond that i would like to see us go and become a four season brand we don't just have to be winter products we have the capabilities of manufacturing great products that can work in all types of weather um, for all types of different sports. Um, And then hopefully at some point um, have some brick and mortar stores where you can come and see the goods, feel and touch them. um, But you're still going to order them through us, through our site, which is what you're seeing with Warby Parker right now. So Warby Parker was direct to consumer only. They'd send you five pairs of glasses. You send back the ones you don't want. and now we're seeing brick and mortar stores from them. It's kind of like the reverse of the old the old recipe. Um, right, right. Well, it's, it's more affordable to break into the market that way, right? And then once you have that process and sort of brand fine tuned, you can launch with the store that you exactly want, right? Instead right, of and figuring you, it out that way, you can way. tell your story the way you want it told, and you 
showcase your products. And maybe it, it's not necessarily a brick and mortar drop boutique, um, but a, a boutique of like-minded companies where we can offer a full, you know, um, kit to someone head to toe on any product that they're looking for. But uh, um, from a bunch of companies that, that feel the same way that they do. How do you go about um, working out your manufacturing partners? Because obviously, like, that's a big part of Drop, right? You have relationships with manufacturers that you trust, that you know can develop the product, uh, the quality product that you want to produce and offer online. So how do you guys really go about vetting that and developing those relationships and making sure that, you know, the manufacturers that you're working with really are the best out there? Well, this goes back 20 plus years at this point. Um, we, when we got into this news part of drop, we have relationships with factories that run 15, 20 years deep. Um, we kind of vetted out the, the bad sheep uh, a long time ago. So we have had nothing but a lot of confidence in anyone we've been working with at least in the last 10 years. Um, so it's it's kind of it's 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 hard for me to say as far as like a giving someone advice on finding the best factories. Unfortunately, it's it's trial and error. Yeah, we did that a long time ago. Yeah, everyone I talk to on the on the podcast is always like, you just kind of gotta give it your best shot, and um, the first one's never right, <laughs> and eventually yeah. you'll figure it out. Well, and the flip side of that is you can go and find the factory that produces for all the top companies you can think of. Um, but are you going to be able to afford to work with them is, is another story. It, it, a lot of people can go and have the best products made, but the volume is not going to justify the price that you're going to have to pay for that product. And that's where you run into that. So now you take this product to another factory and say, hey, can you make this for me just like this? Five of them are not going to, and one will, you know, and that's kind of how you, you figure it out. Definitely. Now, I assume in, in this process, you guys also um, keep the idea of sustainability in mind and making sure that while they're also great at making products, they also do it in an environmentally sustainable way, or I guess when you're making product, doing it the most environmentally uh, way possible. Absolutely. Um, you know, and in the product itself, one of the reasons we work with Primaloft Insulation is one of the best insulations out there. Um, but they have made a major commitment to have most of their product line now is what they call Eco Gold. Um, the, the gold is their top tier product, and most of it's Eco now. Um, and these are using recycled materials to, to make their insulation, and that's what we use in all the drop gloves right now. Um, another thing that kind of comes as a nice little add-in to the direct-to-consumer thing is we don't have to use a lot of the packaging that we did in the past. Um, so we're saving trees through paper, through not using header cards, not using boxes. Um, things like that help a lot with sustainability as well. That's true. And then also there's uh, the product is traveling less, right? Because instead of going from the manufacturer to the retailer to the consumer, it's now just going direct to the consumer, right? Or from the yeah. warehouse to the consumer. So you're kind Absolutely. of cutting out a little bit of a step there. Yeah, at least one step, yeah. That's interesting. Now, um, what's the best part about being a part of Drop? 
Um, well, I work with a great team of people. Um, but probably the best thing is when I'm on the hill and I see someone in our gear. That's just the most rewarding part of this job and always has been. Yeah, I, I bet. I'm sure like those early years, like as you grew over time, like seeing more and more people with it and knowing, you know, your involvement and the fact that you're responsible for that product being there, right? <laughs> is it is yeah. a nice feeling seeing like the tangible like result of it. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah, no, I, I totally get that. Um now I, I want to mention for the listener um that's listening before Christmas. Uh, between November 27th and Christmas Day, you can actually enter to win um, a pair of goggles from Drop, along with a ton of other ski and snowboard gear from uh, startups and small businesses in the outdoor space. Um, so if you're interested in winning, you can head over to readyeddy.com uh, for your chance to win. And uh, with that, Chris, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast, share your story. I know it was a little bit more unique than others. But yeah, with that, I really, I'm excited to uh, see what's coming in the future with Drop. Sounds good. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready 80 Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week. 